Please turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10. That's where we'll be this morning. Uh, recently, a conflict broke out between the, uh, the Norwich Star Wars Club and the Norwich Sci-Fi Club. And apparently, according to their treasurer, Jim Poole, they have a long history of rivalry and disputes. The uh, police investigation read like this. After a lengthy investigation, talking to witnesses and reviewing good CCTV footage, it was confirmed that there was no assault, only verbal abuse. Uh, the good news was no lightsabers were used in the incident, right? So there it is, church. If uh, fans of Star Wars can't even get along, how is the world going to be healed and experience reconciliation? This week I was dropping off my daughter and I was watching uh, a group of younger kids, kindergartners, go into their class and I thought, man, what a great life it is when you're in kindergarten. But it's so simple. It's so wonderful. It's so safe. It's so protected. There are no, no divisions. They're, they're a part of the group just because they're in the class. Right? They haven't begun that process of creating divisions, but it will start very soon, won't it? Right? Boys are gross and girls are weird. It's us against them. Right? And then we, we, we make those lines of de- demarcation even bolder and sharper as we move through life. Right, we associate with people who share our likes and interests who are similar to us, and we disassociate with others. Right? I'm, I'm into art, or I'm into music. I'm, academics is my thing, or athletics. I'm a part of this group, and I'm not a part of this group, and these people are a part of my group, and those people are not. And throughout life, we go through that process of drawing close to people who are similar to us and moving further away from people who are dissimilar. It's actually been said, you've probably heard it before, that the most segregated hour in the United States is on Sunday mornings. Happens even in the church. And I'm not saying that all differences and distinctions are bad. In fact, uh, there's a beauty in the diversity of God's creation, right? That that is to be celebrated. The problem is our, our fallen human nature uses those differences and amplifies those differences to create boundaries and separations that can only be overcome by the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, what unites us and what is similar about us is what's most important about us, and that is that we are all, in fact, sinners separated from God in need of God's grace. In other words, the only us and them is that maybe we understand that we're sinners in need of God's grace and we have accepted it and is our calling in life to make them into us, right? To call them to join us in experiencing the grace of God and thus be reconciled to God and also be reconciled to one another. That's our calling, church. And maybe you say, okay, I get it that that's our calling, but that sense of separation and division has been going on for all of human history. How do we help? How do we participate with God? You know, it's okay if you don't understand. The early church didn't understand. In fact, the early church was frightened of that. The early church had to be convinced, I would say, they had to be dragged into a proper understanding of the gospel and the implications of the gospel for society. Because they were initially resistant to that process. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to walk with Peter as God drags him deeper into an understanding of the true nature of the gospel. I want you to turn with me, if you're not there yet, to Acts chapter 10, and we will begin reading in verse 1. Acts chapter 10 and verse 1. Now there was a man at Caesarea whose name was Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. A devout man and one who feared God with all of his household. He gave many alms to Jewish people and he prayed to God continually. 
About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius. And fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, what is it, sir? He said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying at the house of a tanner named Simon, who lives by the sea. When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he'd explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The gospel is good news, and it's good news for all of mankind, first because God pursues everyone who seeks him. God seeks after the seekers. God even seeks after those who we would consider enemies. Cornelius is a great illustration of an enemy in Peter's mind. He's the perfect prototype of an enemy. He's a Roman. And he's not only a Roman, he's a Roman soldier. He's not only a Roman soldier, he's a Roman soldier who commands 100 soldiers. That is, he's one of the occupiers. When Peter first began to follow Jesus Christ, his hope I would argue his understanding of salvation was that God will destroy Rome and God will throw out all of the foreign invaders. If there ever was a person that in Peter's mind would be considered his own enemy and also an enemy of God, Cornelius, the Roman centurion. But Cornelius, the Roman centurion, was also a man who was seeking hard after God. Look at the description again in verse 2. It says he is a devout man. One who feared God with all of his household, he gave many alms to the Jewish people, that is, he provided for their poor, and he prayed to God continually, three signs of devotion in the Jewish mind, prayer, giving of alms, and fasting. Two of these are mentioned here. It appears that Cornelius was not a full proselyte or convert to Judaism, but he was a man who sought hard after God. He had not converted fully and obeyed all of the laws and submitted to circumcision, but he was a man who was seeking after God with his whole heart, and so God was seeking after Cornelius. Why? Because God loves those who we would even consider enemies. I want you to turn with me to the book of Matthew. Keep your place here in Acts 10 and turn to Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 and verse 43. When Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Hey, Jesus quotes first from the Old Testament, you shall love your neighbor. And then he quotes from what was a popular understanding of the law, an interpretation of the law in his day. Love your enemy, love your family, love your friends, love other Jews, but hate your enemies. That's the proper interpretation of love your enemies. It's the corollary truth. You are free to hate your enemies. Jesus says, no, really, you misunderstand the very heart of God and the reason that God gave the law and the nature of the law and what's embedded in it is really God's, God's, God's righteous and perfect and loving heart. So he says, that's what you've heard, but I say to you, you've misunderstood. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Jesus says, do you want to be like your heavenly father? Well, let me tell you what he's like. 
He loves even those who hate him. He loves those who hate you. This is the very nature of God. He causes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He causes blessings to descend on those who love him and those who hate him. Why? Because he wants all to be drawn into his family and church. He wants us to participate in that process of reconciliation. So I want you to notice here is that God is seeking after those who are lost. God is seeking after even his enemies. He's going after those who hate him, those who reject him. And his intention is to draw all people to himself. I mean, he can do that through a vision. He can do it through a sign. He can do it through an angel coming. He can do it through a track that was found on the ground. That's my wife's testimony. She just discovered something laying there, picked it up and read it and believed. He can do it through a missionary or friend, or neighbor who is sent to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can do it through all of those manners, but ultimately what God desires is he wants to send us. He wants us to go, right? Philip was sent to Samaria. Peter sent to Caesarea. Paul and Barnabas will be sent to Asia Minor. That's God's intention. Notice here in the story, God sends an angel to Cornelius, but the angel doesn't share the gospel, does he? Wouldn't that have been a lot more efficient? The angel's already here, and Peter usually screws things up, so just let the angel tell the story. Right? Let the angel deliver the good news. No, the angel just says, God's going to send a man, and his name is Peter. Wait for it. Wait for it. Why? Because in the process of us being sent and us obediently going, God changes us. And I'm going to argue that that's what's really happening in Acts chapter 10 is that God is changing the church. Cornelius in particular is the perfect person for Peter to be sent to because he was a Gentile, he was an enemy. And Peter's mind is blown that God is reaching out and welcoming those who seem to be enemies of God. Look with me again, Acts chapter 10, verse 9. Turn back with me. Acts chapter 10, verse 9. God is changing the church. Because, I would argue, the attitudes and the actions of the early church leaders, the apostles, actually were creating a barrier to the church. And we've talked about this as we begin to develop the storyline of the book of Acts. As Don Richardson once wrote, hundreds of millions of Christians think that Luke's Acts of the Apostles actually records the 12 apostles' obedience to the Great Commission. Actually, it records their reluctance to obey it. The resistance to obey it. And so Peter's heart and mind have to be stretched as a leader of the church so the church can be stretched. Verse 9 says, On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. So while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never in my entire life eaten anything unholy or unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times. And immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Three times. Why three times? Everything happens in three times for Peter because Peter is so stubborn, right? 
Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Right? Three times that rooster's going to crow. Peter, three times he would be reminded, tend my sheep. Stop worrying about what's going to happen to John. Tend my sheep, guard my sheep, protect my sheep, watch out for my sheep. Peter, no, 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 Lord, you're not going to, you're not going to go to the cross. Peter, it's not your way. Three times, God says, this is what's going to happen. Why? Because Peter's understanding and application of the law as a reflection of God's nature had to be changed. It had to be changed. Remember, in the law, there were ceremonial laws, there were moral laws, there were societal laws, there were laws that governed how the family should operate and how Jews should interact with one another, how Jews should relate to the nations around them, how Jews should relate to their God. Okay, laws cover, in other words, all of life. Right? It was a framework for how you would think and act in all of life. But what had happened in the Jewish mindset is that the law became a barrier. Us on the inside and them on the outside. And Peter's understanding of the law and consequently of God had to be radically and deeply changed. Let me give you one illustration. This is from the Babylonian Talmud. One of the primary commentators, authoritative commentaries on the law said this. As the sacred food was intended not for the dogs, the Torah was intended to be given not to the Gentiles. You see the parallel there? (laughs) What are Gentiles? Their value is that of dogs. So the dietary restrictions that Peter was hung up on here were simply an illustration of it's us and them. And they are out and we are in. So Peter goes because he's seen a vision and he cannot resist. He goes with these men and he arrives in Caesarea. Verse 24 it says, on the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. Peter raised him up saying, that's not a good idea, stand up. I'm just a man. As he talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. Oh, what a winsome way to begin your presentation of the gospel, isn't it? You know I really shouldn't be here, right? Because if I'm here and I'm associating with you in the house, then I can't go and worship at the temple because I will be unholy. See the implication of that? If I get too close to you, I can't get close to God. There's something about you that defiles me, that ruins my ability to draw close to God. A barrier, a separation. And Peter has to understand that that's not the heart of God and that's not how God thinks and God understands his creation. There is an inscription, you can still read it. This used to be on the the very temple mount. And it was placed on a wall. The wall that divided the Jewish section of worship from the Gentile, right? Court of the Gentiles and the court of the Jews. And in this inscription, it reads, if you are a Gentile and you cross over this barrier, we will put you to death. In other words, you can't get close to our God. Salvation is for the Jews. It is not for you Gentiles. This is as close as you can get. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul will actually literally refer to this when he says, For he himself, that is Jesus, is our peace, 
who made both groups, Jew and non-Jew, into one. And he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. This is an allusion to the literal barrier that kept Gentiles separated from the very presence of God. But what happened when Jesus Christ died? The very veil of the temple was torn in two so that all would have perfect access into the presence of God. Peter doesn't get that yet. In his mindset, still, salvation is for the Jews. And he needs to understand, no, salvation isn't for the Jews. It is from the Jews for all people, for all times. I want you to turn with me to the gospel of Mark now. Hold your place in Acts 10 again and turn to Mark chapter 7 and verse 18. Mark 7, verse 18. Jesus is speaking with his 12 disciples. He said to them, Are you still so lacking in understanding? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is thus eliminated. In this way, Jesus declared all foods clean. And he was saying, That which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts and fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within. That's what defiles the man, not the food that he puts into his mouth. And Mark adds that commentary for us. Thus Jesus declared that all foods are clean. Foods aren't really the issue. What is God concerned about? The heart. God cares about people. He doesn't care that deeply about what people eat. So why then did God give these laws okay, that seem to create boundaries? Well, he gave those for protection for his people. Because as they entered into the promised land, they would be enticed to worship idols. They would be enticed by the people of the land. Come, have fellowship with us, have a meal with us. And that meal would be surrounded by the worship of an idol. That would be the culture of the, of the fellowship surrounding the meal. And God wanted to protect his people from being drawn away from him, the one true God, toward false idols. And so they were to protect his people, but also to make his people winsome to the people around them. See what it looks like. When a people love God and they're in right relationship with God, see how wonderful life is for them. And they were to be drawn to God through the way that the Jews lived. But what happened particularly in Jesus' day in the first century is that the Jews used all of these restrictions to keep people out. To create a boundary so that people wouldn't come in. Salvation is for the Jews, was their mindset not from the Jews, for all people. And so Peter's entire worldview had to be changed. The entire worldview of the church had to be changed. They were thinking, okay, it's all right if a few, Jew, few Gentiles come in, but we don't want a flood of them. And if they come in, they've got to think like us and act like us, believe like us, behave like us, do everything like us. But that wasn't God's intent. God's intent was originally always to bring all men to himself through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We go all the way back to the beginning of the Jewish people. Abraham was given a promise. God said to him this, I will bless you, I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and in you all of the families of the earth will be blessed. Abraham, I'm going to bring blessing to the earth, but the blessing isn't just for you, it's through you to all peoples. Later, prophet Isaiah records the words of God's Messiah, his servant, Now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant 
It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. The servant says, God has revealed to me. It's not enough that you would just draw in the Jewish people, but through the Jewish people that you would draw in all people. The apostle Paul will actually take this verse and ascribe it to himself and say, this is what God has spoken to me as well. And you know what, church, this is applied to us as well. What is our calling? To be reconciled to God ourselves and then to help the world be reconciled to God and to one another. The ministry of reconciliation. Revelation chapter 7, Revelation chapter 5. There's a vision given of the throne room of God. And you know what's happening there? They're worshiping. They're worshiping. They're, they're throwing their crowns at, at Jesus' feet. They're bending the knee. They're lifting their hands. They're, they're, they're just yelling out in worship. Worthy is the lamb. And you know who's there? Men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, old and young, black and white, Asian, Hispanic, all joining together, one family of God. That was God's goal. That was God's intent. And I will tell you frequently, favorite passages, Revelation 5 and 7, I continually go back and and read those because they remind me that's the point, right? That's why we live this day is for that day. When we see men and women all joined together in the family of God, reconciled to God, reconciled to one another, which can only happen through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And and the church had to get to this point because the church was initially resistant to this idea. Because Peter was thinking, no, the gospel is for us. Salvation is for us. No, salvation is through us. To all nations and to all men. And that is how God will heal humanity. That's the only way that God can heal humanity. Turn back with me again, chapter 10 and verse 34. Acts chapter 10, verse 34. Peter opens his mouth and he says, I most certainly now understand that God is not one to show partiality. Literally, God is not one to lift up his face in blessing towards some and to turn his face away from others. God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, because he is Lord of all, all nations, all people. Notice he will go on and he will present the facts of the gospel, the life of Jesus. And he went around and he did good and healed and he preached and he was crucified, buried. He rose from the dead. He ascended on high. He will return to judge. But he summarizes all of those facts of the gospel in one word in verse 36, and it is peace. Peace. Which in Peter's mind is the Hebrew concept shalom. Shalom. When a Jew says hello, they say shalom. When a Jew says goodbye, they say shalom. It doesn't mean hi. It doesn't mean howdy. It's, it's a lot richer than that, right? Shalom. Shalom means this. It means the absence of all conflict. Conflict is gone. Swords and spears are beat into pruning hooks and plowshares. There is peace. Absence of conflict. Shalom means presence of blessing. That is all of the best that God has for all of humanity finally restored. The garden on earth again, so to speak. 
All of God's richest blessings poured out on earth. So the absence of conflict, the presence of blessing. The Jew says hello. He says shalom. God's richest blessings upon your life. The Jew says goodbye. Shalom. God's richest blessings upon your life. Shalom, Peter says. This is the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ only available through Jesus Christ. Reconciled to God. Reconciled to one another. Reconciled even to creation. All things put in order again. It is a picture of the kingdom of God provided only through Jesus Christ. That is how God will heal. And in case you wondered if humanity needs to be healed, let me give you a few illustrations. World War I, 11 million casualties throughout the earth. World War II, there were 59 million casualties. Cost of World War I was 196 billion. Cost of World War II was $2 trillion, which seems kind of small in light of our national debt, but that's another item that we'll talk about later, right? Conflict between nations, conflict within nations. So last week I looked up the latest uh, crime statistics that I could find from the FBI. 2013, there were 1.2 million violent crimes committed in the United States. 8.6 million property crimes. Conflict within nations, conflict within our nation, conflict between nations, conflict even inside the home. Approximately 20 people every minute are physically abused by someone they have a close relationship with. That's 10 million victims a year. There is a divorce every 36 seconds in our country. It's 2,400 divorces per day, 16,000 divorces per week. That's 876,000 divorces a year. Conflict, animosity. Where did it start? It started in the garden, right? Eve took the fruit, she ate, she handed to Adam, and they got in a fight. Right? It's just like that. I suspect that Eve would have filed for divorce immediately, but she had nowhere else to turn. Right? Where's she going to go? She's stuck with Adam. So they had children, children of conflict, children fighting one another immediately. And I'm sure there was a buildup to this point, but you know, the first sin that's recorded is, is Cain kills his brother, right? He doesn't steal his Easter candy, he kills him. What in the world? And it just grew and it mushroomed and went throughout all nations, and throughout all peoples. In church, it is our calling to be a part of that process of reconciliation. Helping men and women get reconciled to God because until they are reconciled to God, they won't understand forgiveness and then they won't be able to reconcile to other people. But when they're reconciled to God and they understand that we are all sinners saved by grace, we are all in need of God's mercy, then they can extend mercy to others and they can begin participating in that process of reconciliation among men and women. Church, that's our calling. That's what we're called to. So why is that so hard for us? Why is it so difficult? I'm going to give you three reasons. Three reasons that I I feel like are deeply challenging and convicting. The first is this, it's pride. The fact is, we see ourselves here and others here. It's just a part of human nature. I'm here and others are here. My group is here and others are here. I'm going to read you a description that I find very... uh, Humorous, uh, but also very humbling at the same time. If you can start the day without caffeine, if you can always be cheerful, ignoring all of your aches and pains, if you can resist complaining and boring people 
with your troubles. If you can understand when your loved ones are too busy to give you any time. If you can resist treating a rich friend better than a poor friend. If you can face the world without lies and deceit. If you can overlook it when those you love take it out on you when, through no fault of yours, something goes wrong. If you can conquer tension without medical help. If you can say honestly that deep in your heart you have no prejudice against creed, color, religion, or politics, then my friend, you are almost as good as your dog. <laughs> That's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah, so, you know, I'm here, you're here, and actually your dog is here, and you're here. Pride. Uh, ignorance. We don't know other people's stories, and we don't stop to listen to their stories. I'll give you a quote here from Karl Popper. He said this, It might be well for all of us to remember that while differing widely in various little bits we know, in our infinite ignorance, we are all equal. We don't know. There's so much that we don't know. We have pride. We have ignorance. I would say we have fear. If I enter into this process, what will happen? I don't know. What risks will I face? I don't know. What threats will I face? I don't know. What will I lose in the process? I don't know. It's frightening. But I would argue that at the root of it, our problem is theological. Of course, I say that because I'm a pastor. Bring it all back to theology, right? But really, I think it's, it's theological. That's the problem. We have bad theology. Because we just don't see people like God sees people. We don't look with the same eyes on people. When God sees someone, what does he see? He sees his image. That's what God sees. Of course, gender and race and other things are important. They're not to be ignored. But what's most important in the image of God? And that the image is tarnished, in need of restoration, in need of reconciliation, in need of God's grace, in God's image, in need of God's grace. When I was going to seminary, I lived in a really bad neighborhood uh, down near Fair Park and um, surrounded by poverty, surrounded by street people all over the place. And you know, God really stretched me a lot by living there because there were all kinds of people who were just completely broken. I mean, they were just, they were just broken. They were broken physically. They're broken emotionally and relationally. They're broken spiritually. Some were broken mentally. Things, things were just broken in their lives. And I began to ask God to let me see them as he would see them. And that caused me to stop. And I would say in my mind, when I, when I would see someone like that, I'd say, in the image of God. And when I would say in the image of God, I would immediately think, well, what happened? What's the story here that could lead to such incredible brokenness? How does a life get so broken? There's a story here that I don't know and I don't understand. And I can ask would say, in the image of God, for whom Christ died. And those are the two phrases I just ran continually in my mind as I lived in this neighborhood. In the image of God, for whom Christ died. In the image of God, for whom Christ died. As Paul would say in Galatians 3, in Christ, we are one. In Christ, there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free man. In Christ, we all come humbly before the cross, and there isn't me and you. There isn't us and them. It is all of us bending the knee before the cross of Christ saying, we are in the image of God, but we are deeply broken and we need the grace of God to heal us and to reconcile us. That's the source, men and women. That is the only source. But we fight against that sometimes in our pride or our ignorance or our fear, or simply that we just don't see people like God sees them in the image of God. 
And God loves that, that, that broken person so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for that person. I remember one guy in particular, he was an alcoholic. He would get drunk every night and he would fall asleep. I don't know why, but he would fall asleep right under my window. And he would snore so loudly that he would wake me up under my window in the bushes, sound asleep. 3 a.m., he would wake me up. I would have to lift him up, help him get back to the, the halfway house where he lived. And I remember thinking, oh man, I'm mad at this guy for waking me up. <laughs> How does a life get to the point where it's okay night after night to get drunk and fall asleep in the bushes? How does a life get to that point? For whom Christ died. It's not us and them, it's us. It's us. At the foot of Jesus Christ clinging to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the only thing that can heal us and heal humanity, heal all of mankind. See, Peter had to have his, his whole worldview shaken, just as I had mine shaken. Look at me in chapter 10, verse 44. Peter preaches the gospel. He's still preaching the gospel. In verse 44, it says, while he was still speaking, he got interrupted by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message and all the circumcised believers came, who came with Peter, they were amazed. Why were they amazed? Because they didn't expect God to act as God had promised to act, which is to draw in men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. They didn't get it yet, so they were amazed. What? God's going to give his spirit to others who aren't just Jews? How does that work? God's going to open up the door to these Gentiles before they have cleaned up their act? That's amazing. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, just as the Jews had received it. For they were, hearing, they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit, just as we did, Kenny. And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. I love Peter's response. Well, I guess we really don't have a choice, do we? But to let them get baptized. Remember, uh, when the gospel was preached in Samaria by Philip, they didn't immediately receive the Spirit. Instead, Peter and John went down and they laid hands on them and then they received the Spirit. Which was establishing, I think, the early authority of the apostles and the message they were proclaiming. But here... Peter's in the middle of his sermon. God's Holy Spirit begins to act. Peter doesn't touch him. They don't get baptized. Nothing happens. Instead, the Spirit comes. Why? Because the Spirit had to prove a point to the church, and that is God's in charge. And this is God's mission, and God's mission is this. Open the door widely, and all may come. Okay? Because this is the only source of healing for the world. Now, what's amazing is Peter has to defend himself, right? Peter has to defend himself. Why? Because if the gospel is such great news, we should expect that Satan will attack it. He'll attack it from outside. He will even try to attack it from inside. And that's what happened immediately. The gospel of grace given freely to all was attacked. Verse 11. Chapter 11, excuse me, verse 1. Chapter 11, 1. It says, Now the apostles, the brethren who were throughout Judea, heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter came up to Jerusalem... Those who were circumcised, that is the Jews, they took issue with him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. That's my fourth point. 
the gospel has to be defended. Because Satan will attack the gospel. Because the gospel is the only source of healing. And he wants to disrupt it. And so these Jewish believers, they say, what in the world? They, they, don't, they don't attack Peter for presenting the gospel to Gentiles. They attack Peter for eating with them. Right? Peter, you didn't make them stop eating lobster and crickets before you had fellowship with them. Peter, you let them come in without behaving like Jews and thinking like Jews and acting like Jews. Peter, you opened the door too widely. And so Peter has to defend himself and he goes through the whole account of what happened. Notice what he says here in verse 15. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. He says, look, you got to understand, I wasn't in charge of this. I'm in the middle of my speech and the Holy Spirit came. And then if it, I need to make the point any further, let me quote Jesus. I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Notice their response. When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. I love that. It's not very enthusiastic, is it? All right, all right. Now we got lots of Gentiles coming in. Well, okay. I guess if we have to open the door to him, we must. Because God's spirit came on them just like he did on us. You see, church, that the early church just didn't get it. And God had to come in and just shake up their world. Why? Because it is natural, fallen human nature that we say, us and them. And the gospel says, no, it's just, it's just us. All of us. I want you to turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians. I'll read this passage as we close. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one, that is Jesus, he died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Why did Christ die for us? To reconcile us to his Father and to teach us to stop living for ourselves. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. We don't look at the external things any longer. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And he gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg people on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Man, isn't that a beautiful paragraph? Isn't that beautiful? Wow. What was the work of God? The work of God that he was, he was sending his son 
to the world so that the world could be reconciled to him. That's the work of God, the work that God could only accomplish through his son, Jesus Christ. And then in reconciling the world to himself, not counting them as enemies, instead seeing their sin transferred to the account of Christ, punished in Christ so that they could be friends. He would draw them to himself and he would say, church, join me, right? Join me in this ministry of reconciling men and women to God and reconciling men and women to one another because that's the only source of hope for the world. That's it. We're it. The message of Jesus Christ, that's it. So church, God is calling us to this. Now let me give you a few specific applications. First, uh, Breakaway, this Tuesday, uh, Derwin Gray is going to be speaking. He's an a African-American pastor. Uh, he's a former NFL football player. He's got some videos out. He's uh, the uh, evangelistic linebacker. He's uh, really, really funny, really engaging. And he's been a, a really wonderful voice for Reconciliation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say to yourself, you know, I'm just too old to get up and uh, park on campus at 9 o'clock. Breakaway now live streams. So just sit in your own home and listen and be convicted. Okay? This will stretch you. Derwin Gray is a really effective communicator. Great opportunity that uh, Ben was able to get him to come. Second, be the bridge. We have some families here in, in our church who have begun this process of creating dialogue amongst people from all different races in our community. And if you would like to participate in that dialogue to help understand where are other people coming from and how can we grace, graciously present the gospel as the solution, contact Chris McGuffey. He can help you get involved in that process. Third, I would say this simply. Look, listen, learn. Look, listen, and learn. Pay, start paying attention to the people around you who are not like you. We tend to drift toward people who are like us, right? And away from people who are not like us. Let's start paying attention to the people around us who aren't like us, and ask questions, learn their story, understand the process that God has been doing. If you can sense the, the movement of God's spirit in their lives to bring them to this point of intersection with your life, where you can help them know and understand that the only person who reconciles them to God and to reconciles them in their relationships to others is Jesus Christ. Okay, church, let's let God shake us up, stir us up, change us, open our hearts, just as he did for Peter. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are not a respecter of persons. We thank you that you do not lift your face to some and turn your face away from others. But the gospel is good news for all people for all times. Father, I pray that we would be partners with you in reconciling people to you through your son, Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that we would be partners with you in reconciling people to one another through the forgiveness that we experience in Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that as you do so, you would just stretch us, stretch our hearts to love what you love and to be devoted to what, what really is important and matters to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week being reconcilers. I'll see you next week.